Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. The father-son relationship is central to making a people prepared for the Lord. The Old Covenant closes with Malachi 4, 5 and 6 where God says, I will send the spirit of Elijah the prophet and he will turn the hearts of fathers to sons, sons to the fathers, such that I will not come to the earth and strike it with a curse. When John the Baptist came on the scene in the New Testament, he came in the same spirit or frequency of Elijah. In fact, Jesus said to the disciples and to others concerning John the Baptist, he said to them, if you would accept it, this John is Elijah, which is to come. Right? It was not Elijah. All Jesus was saying is, he comes in the same frequency, grace, or spirit of Elijah. And in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, it says of John, just like the verse reads uh, in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, of John in verse 17 of Luke chapter 1, it says, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him. The him here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He will go as a, John was a preparer of the way. He will go as the forerunner before him, In what? In the spirit and the power of Elijah. And what he will do. What what is the outward expression of anything that is depictive of the spirit and power of Elijah? It is this. He turns the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And there's a slight difference in the rewording here as compared to Malachi 4, 5 and 6. Not so? So, Malachi 4.5 says he will turn the hearts of fathers to their sons and sons to their fathers so that God will not strike the earth with a curse. Yeah, it says he will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and then he describes the turning of the heart of a son to the father in these terms. To turn the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. And to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Amen. Amen. So the father-son wineskin, the the ministry of spiritual fathering to spiritual sons, has got this effect. It cancels disobedience in people. The whole thing is to get a people to a place of obedience. And the observance of God's laws. And to the attitude. Attitude is a mentality. To get your mind back to righteous thinking. Right? To get your mind back to, to righteous thinking. And to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now obviously John the Baptist did it to prepare his people for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in that time and era. But we are doing it now in our day in the spirit and power of Elijah. We are doing the same thing to break disobedience, to break rebellion. Like in the days of Judges, every man does what is right in his own eyes. We're going to break that rebellious culture, get people back to a place of obedience, get righteous attitudes 
embedded within all the hearts of God's people. Why? Because that is essential to do what? To make people prepared for the Lord. Amen? John the Baptist is always a forerunner. He's a preparer of the way. We too that come to you in the spirit and power of Elijah, we are preparers of the way too. We, by speaking these truths to you in this local church and some of the other visiting pastors as well, what we're doing in the spirit, we are preparing the context, the environment, for the doings of the Lord among you. There are certain things that God cannot do until there's a people prepared. Amen? So tell your neighbor you are in preparation. And I know prophetically, we've said this over and over again, that this context is poised to be the venue, to be the environment of great doings of the Lord. And right now you're in a period of preparation. Amen? Part of the, the, an essential part of the preparation is that we get the father-son wineskin properly in place. Because in that context, in that culture, will come great expressions of disobedience and attitudes of righteousness being expressed in and through the house. I told you this, and I want to labor the point, that um, the work begins in and through fathers. It's the heart of the fathers that must be turned towards sons. I have a whole separate teaching that's basically all for leaders and for, for congregation members, as it were, about how that, whenever there was inaccurate fathering expressed in a leader in the Old Covenant, that God would orchestrate the setting aside of that leader or the exodus of sons out of that leader's influence. Right? And that is something that leaders need to be aware of. Okay? But it must, the turning must start in the heart of the leaders. Now consider the confidence of the young prodigal son who returned to his father. Remember he squandered his inheritance, the prodigal. And he wasted all of his father's wealth given to him on riotous living. He came to a place where he expended all and he found himself in a pigsty, remember? In the pigsty it says, he came to him self. Right? Sometimes when you don't listen to the voice of your father, maybe you listen to the voice of pigs. Right? Maybe the pigs have greater persuasion than the voice of a father. Right? You know, some people wait until everything is going horribly wrong in their lives for them to wake up. Right? Why go through all of that when as a son you can just submit to the voice of a, of a father? Amen? But it's amazing, in the pigsty, he said to himself, my servants in my father's house are living better than I am. He says, I will arise and I will go to my father. He keeps referring, my father, my father. Right? He never ever forgot the disposition that his father would have adopted in his house toward him, even though he was rebellious. Hmm? And He said, I will arise and I will go to my father's house. Next verse. And he arose and went. He makes a decision in the mind. I will arise and go. And he acts on it. And he arose and went. And when he came back to his father's house, to his surprise, not, I don't think he was surprised because he knew what his father was like. His father was waiting. The Bible says, and his father saw him coming a 
way a long distance away. Point is, in all the while that the prodigal was away from the home, the father always positioned himself to receive him back. That's true fathering. Let me just say this, your fathering will always be tested, particularly with wayward and rebellious sons. But you always got to position yourself in a redemptive posture toward them. And when they come in, be prepared to slaughter your fatted calf. Organize the biggest banquet. Put a ring on his finger. Put a robe on him. And have a party of rejoicing. Because he was lost has now been found. Do you know what the biggest obstacle to the prodigal son's return was not the father? It was the elder brother. Brothers in the house must adopt the view and spirit of Father. Amen? The prodigal, the Bible says, return to the father of the house. But the older, the older son went to the house of the father. The youngest son had a house. He knew there's a house. But his relationship to the house wasn't to the house. His relationship was to the father of the house. There are many that only relate to the, they don't relate to the grace resource which is fathering, but they come to the house of their father. You must learn to appreciate the father of the house and not so much the house of the father. Amen? And so, when I think of my father in the Lord, God has given graciously into His hands various assets to manage. Now consider all that He does. My, the, the thing that joins me to Him is not all of those things. It's Him, the resource. Amen? So I want to encourage you to connect in your heart with the heart of the Father. Because it's the heart of the Father that He's turned to you. Not the car of the Father. Not the house of the Father. Not the wealth of the Father. It's his heart. If you get his heart, you have access to all that he represents. Amen? Uh, let me leave that because of, of, of time. Um, and this as well. Just need to get, to get move, to, to move on. Um, let's talk about Moab for a little while. Ruth is from Moab. Elimelech and Naomi go to Moab and they leave the land of Bethlehem in, in Judah. Who was Moab? Moab, before it was a land, it was a person. Not so? Moab was one of the sons born to Lot. Right? Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughter. When he was drunk, the daughters, after they fled Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the husbands died there? The daughters thought there's no men in the earth left to marry them and bear kids. So one day in a cave, while he was drunk, they intoxicated the father and basically slept with their father. It was incest, it was incestuous. His two daughters. Two boys were born to that union. The one boy was named Moab, and the other boy was named Ammon. They would eventually become a whole tribe of people called the Moabites and the Ammonites. Ruth is a Moabitess. 
She's from the land of Moab. If you trace back her roots, her, her forefather is this boy Moab who was born from this incestuous relationship between Lot and his, and his daughter. Now consider Moab's identity. Who's Moab? So Lot and Lot's daughter have a relationship and produce Moab. Question is, is... Hallelujah. <laughs> uh, how do I get this back? I keep... I'm doing nothing wrong except this button. This button. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I'm a naughty boy doing the wrong thing. <laughs> In the house of the Lord. <laughs> There's detention after this, eh? It was 40-something, I think. So who is Moab? Lot and his daughter have this relationship and produce the son. For me, Moab is in an identity crisis. Because how does he see himself? Is Lot Moab's grandfather or his father? Right? So this boy running around the house, what does he say to Lot? Does he say, Daddy? Or does he say, Granddad? Right? Also, is Lot's daughter Moab's mother or his sister? Because I can relate to you as sister because we have the same father. Right? Or I can relate to you as my mother because you bore me. This boy is growing up in an environment where he cannot make sense of his true identity. Right? So there's what we have. An identity crisis. What's the major problem in the church today? An identity crisis. If you don't know who you are, you will never fulfill your destiny. Right? You first got to establish identity before you fulfill destiny. Knowing who you are is essential to fulfilling what God called you to do. You never ever embark upon major doings of the Lord without firmly understanding who you are in Christ. Amen? And what really helps, we are all sons of God. Amen? We are sons of God. From my personal experience, my experience with the father-son dynamic in spiritual fathering and sonship has really anchored me in my identity as God's son. Right? I, I said to you the purpose of that relationship, the spiritual father-son relationship, is to make me more confident in my relationship with the Heavenly Father, that's the result. Okay? And who, once you know who you are, there's no telling in terms of what God is able to do in and, and through you. So many people are in identity crisis mode. Amen? And I want to encourage you that God's about reordering, reordering this. Now, just quickly, Samuel had in the scriptures what many people believe was called the school of the prophets, right? At Gibeah and Naroth. Now, here's some scriptural examples. In 1 Samuel 10 and verse 10, you will read the phrase, group of prophets. In 1 Samuel 19 and verse 20, you will read the phrase, company of prophets. Right? So Samuel then was a very good prophet because he trained other prophets, not so? 
He had a school where there was mentorship in the prophetic. But he was not so much of a good father. Remember, his own sons became wayward in the Lord. Who did he learn from? He had a very bad mentor in the same thing. Eli, remember? Hophni and Phineas. Was, Eli was a poor representation of fathering because he failed to reprimand his sons. Samuel grew up under Eli's auspices initially, remember? Samuel was the mouthpiece of God, one of the most accurate prophets. God never let one of his words fall to the ground. But sad reality is that his sons did not follow in his, did not follow his footsteps. And his sons also became wayward. Now, if you have a look at a different fathering grace, Elijah too was a good prophet, not so. Right? But Malachi 4 says that the, the, the main um, grace characteristic on Elijah is his capacity to restore fathers and sons. Right? Now, if you examine him in the time in which he was living, he, was, he seems to be a very good prophet. And also a very good spiritual father to many. Particularly to Elisha. Elisha was not his only son, he had many. But Elisha was his protege, as it were, one that was going to succeed him in giving lead to the prophetic mandate that God had for Israel. Now, all the prophets under their mentorship are termed sons of the prophets. What were, this, what were they called under Samuel's dispensation? Schools of the prophets. Elijah too had schools, but never do you find Elijah's group being called schools of the prophets or company of prophets. They are consistently called sons of the prophets. So they were raised in the prophetic, but they were raised in a fathering son environment, which Samuel lacked in his day. Right? Now, here's some examples. I'm not sure if I put them on here. Here's some Second Kings 2 from verses 2 to 5. You will see here, for example, in verse 3, the sons of the prophets were at Bethel, came to Elisha. The sons of the prophets were at Jericho, approached Elisha. Both Elijah and Elisha would have sons of the prophets as the frequency or the characteristic that described the ethos of their schools in the prophetic. It wasn't just training people to become prophetic and the next prophets and good prophets. It was within the culture of them fathering them into the maturation of their gift. Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, he said, you have many teachers, but you have few fathers. Fathers do teach, but they teach in a fathering environment. It makes a world of difference. It really does. Elisha functioned in a double portion of anointing. You know this. Of Elijah. Not so? And a significant aspect of the Elijah anointing is the return of the hearts of fathers to sons. We know that from Malachi chapter 4. Not so. And sons to their fathers. So, Elijah represents true fathering anointing. And Elisha represents the appropriate attitudes and behavior of a true son that eventually emerges himself to become a father. Let me explain. Yes, Elijah, the father, 
Elisha the son. Elijah is an accurate depiction of the father in grace. Elisha is his son that becomes an accurate and appropriate model of sonship in reference to Elisha, but a caliber of son who itself eventually becomes a father to others. Okay? Very important for us to, to understand this. Everyone say, my father, my father. I would suggest that you read a book by this title. It's available freely on Amazon. It's called My Father, My Father by Dr. Sam Solin. You can download it freely from a particular website, which I'll give you later. It's, it's quite um, heavy reading, um, but you'll find it most beneficial. Second Kings 2 and verse 12 um, says the following. Let me give you the context here. Remember, Elisha asked for a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. It was a request. The proviso was simply this. If you see me when I'm taken, you can have it. Right? That's why Elisha never let Elijah out of his sight. Never knew when he was taken. Amen? And so, when Elijah was taken up by a chariot into the heavens, on seeing it, Elisha says to Elijah, who is being whisked away, My father, my father. Right? Says, My father, my, my father. Says this. Elisha saw it. He cried out. Didn't whisper. He cried out. Must have been very loud. My father, my father. Right? And he said, The chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Now, what does this mean? Let me just say this. This was a key that unlocked for him a what? A double portion of the spirit of Elijah um, that was upon him. Right Now, the principle is very clear. Let me, let, me, let me demonstrate the principle. Let me just say it for you, then explain it. The degree that you accurately relate to your spiritual leader as a father will determine the measure of impartation that you receive from him. You see, Elisha was a very committed son. Right? Elisha used to wash the hands of Elijah. He poured water on his hands, the Bible says, and he washed the hands of his father. He served like a faithful son, some people say from between 15 and 20 years before this event took place. He was faithfully committed to his spiritual father. He requested a double portion of his anointing. And when Elijah was taken up, he says, My father, my, my father. And what did happen? Remember Elijah threw his mantle down. And the mantle that Elijah wore, Elisha now wears and uses in the execution of his ministry and a double portion of that grace rests upon Elijah. If you want the grace impartation, you have to learn how to follow. And following is a deliberate, consistent, conscientious and an aggressive activity. Don't follow afar. The degree to which you follow will determine the measure of impartation. Amen? Will determine the measure of impartation. Me personally, I will not miss one of my father's conferences, schools, 
I will not miss one of his Sunday sermons. I'm always keeping. Why? I want double portion of what he carries to be vested in me as well. Amen? Um, I was talking to one or two of you in the break, and you're saying, how do I know all these things? (laughs) Honestly, brethren, I've learned it from my spiritual father. Initially, I thought, how on earth am I going to learn all of this? Let me just say, the ease with which I assimilated the truth of some of the, 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 the spiritual doctrine that he carries was simply my pursuit after it. My close following. Amen? You don't learn for this. This you don't study for. This is impartation. You can accelerate your development in things of the Spirit. Uh, you don't go to university to learn these things. This is an economy of spirit that comes to you and changes your life forever. Amen? I never could speak like this a few years ago. It's simply because of impartation through the spiritual father-son economy. Amen? So I want to encourage you. Your life can change. You know what Elisha saw? He said, my father, my father. What does he say? The, The chariots... Israel and its horsemen. What he was saying, you, Elijah, represent chariots to me. You know, the chariots in his day was the most fastest mode of transport. If they were living today and this happened, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have said chariots. <laughs> you probably said, my father, my father, the Learjets of Israel. <laughs> Something like that. You know? Supersonic jet. Right? Chariots were the fastest mode of transport. What he's, what he's saying essentially is that you, the fathering principle, is the principle that gives me momentum and acceleration in the purposes of God. You represent the principle that fast tracks the development of my life and the purposes of God in me. You represent, and you know, horsemen, I don't have time to labor the point, but horsemen depicts the entirety of the heavenly domain and all of its resources. When Elijah saw Elijah being taken up, he says, my father, my father. Doesn't say it once, says it twice, because he wanted double portion. My father, my father, the horsemen and the chariots of Israel. You represent the principle that brings momentum to God's purposes in my life. What is Timothy without Paul? What is Joseph without Moses? What is John Mark without Peter? What is Elisha without Elijah? No spiritual son can attain the fullness of God's destiny for him without firm connection and and grace impartation from a spiritual father. Hmm? It's very critical that you under that you understand this. Okay, I said that already. You know, years later, I'm afraid to press this button. <laughs> years later, when Elijah himself is about to die, King Joash, mourning his imminent death. He sees Elisha, in Elisha, what Elisha 
years before, earlier, saw in his father Elijah. And here's the reference. 2 Kings 13, verse 14, when Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was about to die, Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him, and he wept over him and said, What? My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elisha said that years before to his father Elijah. You see, what Elisha was as a son to Elijah, he became a father to this king, Joash. You will never ever become a father to anybody until you learn the discipline of sonship to your own father in the Lord. I know whenever I submit myself sonship to my father, I know from the principles that what I'm doing, I'm setting structure in my life for me also to be a good father to those that I father. Amen? It's very, very important. Okay, let's, let's move on. All of Boaz's dealings with Ruth are a result of how she related to Naomi. Naomi was the accelerating principle. Naomi was the chariots of Israel to Ruth. Without Naomi, things are going to move very slowly for Ruth. Naomi, the spiritual father's presence in the life of Ruth, brings momentum to God's work and dealings in the life of Ruth. And the accuracy of this relationship ultimately ensured that the church would one day be born. So critical was this relationship. Amen? Now, let's go on. I want to discuss a very important matter that you must sort of um, ratify and consolidate in your own hearts before you leave. And I put it in the form of a question. Do you see your spiritual father? Do you see? Tell your neighbor before we continue, you better open your eyes. <laughs> Yang is the full meaning of the name Ruth. The name Ruth, like I said to you last night, means someone worth seeing. Her name is, however, more complex than that. She's not just someone worth beholding, someone worth examining, someone that recruits attention. I think she probably was very beautiful externally. Had to be. Right? Once Boaz saw her, he was love-struck. <laughs> yeah? That was the end of him. <laughs> okay. She must have been beautifully externally. So she was somebody worth beholding, even on an external level. But her name also means friendship. Her name also means vision or sight. Ruth is someone that has got the capacity to see. Hence my question, do you see your spiritual father? Ruth is someone that can see, therefore she is worth seeing. Her sight, a prophetic sight, to look at Naomi and see past what she sees in the flesh, to see what Naomi represents to her in the spirit, is the most commendable thing about this girl Ruth. Amen? And I want to encourage you, unless your eyes are opened, 
to see what a man represents in the Spirit, you will forever be blind to the grace and the benefit that the, that grace can afford you. It will be cut off from you. If you cannot see it, you cannot experience it. If you cannot see it, you cannot have it. In the Spirit, this is how things work. The moment you see it, it is yours to experience. But failure to perceive it accurately, you block off its benefit that it can bring to you. Okay? So tell your neighbor, perceive, perceive, perceive. Because Ruth is one that perceives. Now, Ruth did not even consider the natural barrenness and agedness of Naomi, her spiritual father. Why would you follow someone that is barren and that is already old, whose husband had just died and his two sons, one of which happened to be your husband, is dead? There was nothing in the physical, natural, that was appealing tonight to Ruth to, to follow Naomi. So she had to see something beyond what she saw in the in the flesh. And if you read the scriptures, Ruth 1, 11, 12 and 13a says this. Naomi said, Return my daughters. She says this to Ruth and Orpah. Go back my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return my daughters for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Right? She's telling the girls, even if I remarry and have sons, you girls are too old to wait for these boys to grow up and marry them. So there's nothing in this lady's natural uh, physical world that is attractive to Ruth to connect with her. Ruth had to have seen something beyond the physical. Now Paul teaches us not to relate to men in the flesh. Paul did not relate or praise any man after the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says the following, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one in the flesh. And he says, Even though we have known Christ in the flesh, the Son of Man, Yet now we know Him in this way no longer. That is why we don't believe in the rebuilding of the physical temple at Jerusalem. That teaching is totally flawed. Right? Because God is not reverting back to a Jewish order to receive the Messiah. We know Him in the flesh no longer. We know Him in the after the, after the Spirit. Now, Paul says, I appraise, everyone say recognize. recognize. Be honest, what is the first thing you thought when you saw me? Okay, handsome. <laughs> what, what was your first impression? Your first impression of me will tell me where you are in the spirit. Because this verse says, you must train yourself not to relate or respond or recognize anybody after their flesh. You know when we meet people we, we register sex or gender rather. He's male or he's colored male. Right? Maybe he's thin, fat, whatever. Hope I'm not fat. 
Okay, <laughs> good point, Amen. Now, it's amazing. First impressions are lasting impressions, they say. Right? But if you train your senses not to, to relate to a man based on physical externalities, always register in your mind what the person represents in the spirit before you observe physical, outward, natural things. Paul says, I appraise nobody after the flesh, but I learn to judge a man after the grace content in the spirit. Don't judge anybody by their race. Judge them by their grace content. Amen? Now, the reason why this is important, that Ruth sees Naomi not based upon her physical disadvantage that she represents but she judges her based on the spiritual grace advantage and benefit she would be to her. Now, let me look at a couple of scriptures, so just to labor this point. In this season, descent and sonship is not determined by a logically or by natural proximity to someone. It's determined by the extent to which that person's outward behavior is reflective of the principles and the will of the father or the progenitor. Lineage, everyone say lineage, lineage, is being redefined in terms of the extent to which one has positively contributed to the overall plan and the design of the Lord. Your placement in genealogy of things is attained and confirmed by how you effected divine purpose on the earth. Your placement in genealogy is determined by how you contributed and effected the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes in the earth. Look at a couple of scriptures to explain all of this. In Matthew 12 and verse 46, while Jesus was speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Please hear me carefully. Jesus is about to redefine relationships. There is busy teaching. He's interrupted saying, Hey, your physical, biological mother Mary and your other natural biological brothers are all outside waiting for you. He says, really? Yeah, is that so? Who really is my mother? Who is my brother? Who are my sisters? And he gives the answer. Stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, behold my mother. Behold my brothers. Whoever does what? The will of my Father who is in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. So I wrote here, your spiritual standing and relationship on the earth is determined and must therefore be regulated by one condition and factor only. The factor is the extent to which a person does the will of the Father. 
Jesus said, Who's my mother? Who's my father? Who are my brothers? Stretching out his hands to the disciples, he said, This is my mother. This is my brother. This is my, 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 my sisters or sister. They that do the will of my father which is in heaven. It's very important. Right? Please, this is no reason not to respect your natural biological family. Don't go out there and say, now you are lesser than, than others. No. The principle is simply, the people that you must most intimately connect with are those that do the will of the Father. Isn't it true sometimes you feel more closer to people in the church than your natural biological family? Doesn't it so that, uh, this has been my experience at times as well, that the church, my spiritual family, they that do the will of my father, rank greater in priority than even my natural family? Right? Again, there's no reason. We must always work with our natural families, love and respect them, be there for them, meet with them, socialize, love, and represent Christ to them in their context. But really... I feel so strongly about this. In the season in which we are now currently living, relationships are being redefined. And I just don't know why the Lord is allowing me to stress this point here. Many of you are are fighting this. I say to you by the Spirit of the Lord, God is re-socializing the church. God is reordering relationships in the church. Right? Also, too, you know, I've been to some contexts where you can't see past the biological relationship when a higher principle spiritually should be governing that relationship. In some contexts, I know of people where God has raised up a spiritual father to be the father to a spiritual son. But because they are biological brothers, the natural relationship eclipses spiritual relationship should be. Right? And so you get that scenario too in some context. Matthew 13 and verse 54 it came. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom and these miracles um, and these miraculous powers? Is this not who? Hey, we know this brew. He's from down the road. He's Joe's son. Where does this guy come from with all these words of wisdom and miraculous power? This is the guy from down the street. Right? Now notice what's happening here. They're judging him after the flesh and not after the spirit. Right? And notice what will happen whenever that's the case. They say, is not his mother Mary, his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas, his natural biological brothers, his sisters, are they not all with us? When then did this man get all of these things? And what happened? They took what? They took offense at him. You see, you will always be offended when you appraise a relationship inaccurately. Offense will always come when you cannot see the grace content that a man represents. You judge him after the flesh, particularly when in your mind he is now expressing a skill in the spirit that your natural judgment of him in the flesh doesn't fit. 
and you become offended in your heart. I certainly hope no one's offended by me this morning. Amen? And then, it says, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own, in his own household. You know what they, you know what the, this principle is saying? They became so familiar with him. Oh, he's the carpenter's son. We know all his siblings. He's the guy from down the road. Whenever you familiarize, you equalize. And when you equalize, you neutralize the grace. You see, they saw themselves as equal to him. We know him. They could not elevate what he represented in the spirit. In fact, they failed to honor him. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And I want to encourage this, this household and all the pastors present here. Make sure that you don't get so familiar with the person in the flesh that it blinds you to what the person represents in the spirit over your life. Especially with spiritual fathering and sonship. A culture of dishonor can creep in. And whenever disrespect, dishonor creeps in, because now you are friends, and your pastor is the nice guy, you see yourself as equal to him, and whenever you over-familiarize, you equalize yourself, and you neutralize the grace flow in your life. You must always, you will always be your friend. We are fathers, but we are also friends. Always be nice. Always be a people, people's persons. Love, we have the smell of sheep on us. We intermingle. Right? We don't lord over God's vineyard as autocrats. But by virtue of the fact that we are also in the house, we are also over the house. Amen? And so I want to encourage you, always maintain your honor for the servants of God. You know the sad thing, I think the verses here, the Bible says, He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. What happens is you stifle the miraculous flow in a culture of of dishonor. You see, because how does faith come? Faith comes by hearing the word. Now he's, he's teaching there, right? Because they reference, where did this man get his? Wisdom from. He began teaching. So they're hearing word, but what they are hearing does not produce faith, but unbelief, simply because of the way in which they view him. What you see in the man is very important. What you see, what you perceive. Otherwise, the word that is preached will not result in faith that paves the way for the miraculous. In a culture of dishonor, Powerful word can be preached, but it will do nothing for you and the miraculous will always pass you by. Hmm? When Ruth sees Naomi, she, she did not adopt Orpah's mindset. Orpah's like, I'll cut my losses and return back to Moab. Ruth says no. And the famous quote is, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will dwell. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people. 
Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. There was this loyalty and firm covenantal commitment of a spiritual son to a spiritual father. Orpah rebels. And she goes back to Moab. You know what the Bible says actually about Orpah? The Bible says about her that she went back to Moab and its gods. It wasn't just a natural decision. It was a spiritual decision. The gods that the Moabites served was a deity called Chemosh. Chemosh means swift destroyer. Who would like to worship a god whose name means swift destroyer? You see, but Ruth said, I'm not just following you. Your god will be my god. Orpah says, I go back to Moab and it's God's. The decision is always spiritual. Orpah saw in the natural and says, Hey, there's nothing much I can get out of this woman. I married one of her sons. He's dead. She's old, probably barren. Nothing in this relationship for me. She was totally blind to what Naomi represented. Ruth saw something that Orpah failed to see. Ruth saw, although Naomi would come back to Bethlehem, bitter. Remember when she came back, she would say, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. Naomi, the meaning of Naomi's name is good, pleasant, agreeable. That's what the word Naomi means. Good, pleasant, friendly, agreeable. When she comes back into the city, she says, don't call me Naomi, don't call me good, don't call me agreeable, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, Because the Lord God has dealt harshly against me. Husband did. Sons did. Ruth even saw past the bitterness in the woman to see the latent spiritual fathering grace that she represented. I'm telling you, in this season, the battle is for sight. What you see is very important. Even to see beyond the weaknesses of a man, to behold the kernel of grace that he represents. Very important too, as to what you see. They could not see what Jesus represented, and it blocked off the miraculous flow of God's power um, to them. Repeat after me. Perception determines perception determines reception. So I will not receive you until I perceive you accurately. So I perceive you, then receive you. My perception of you will determine my reception of you. And when I receive you, I get a reward. Reception determines reward. Right? The grace you cannot perceive, you won't receive. And the grace you will not receive, you won't be rewarded. So you've got to see it to receive it. Once I receive it, I get the reward and the blessing attendant with it. They saw a carpenter's son. They failed to perceive him accurately. They rejected him, did not receive him. They did not receive him. He could do no no great miracles there because of their unbelief based upon inaccurate appraisal of the man. Train your senses, church. Next time you meet anybody, This doesn't only relate to spiritual fathering. If you reject someone because you inaccurately judge them in the flesh, you forego 
the spiritual benefit that that person could have been to you by virtue of their grace content that you have failed to see. Very important. Now, let's look at this issue again from 1 John. The spirit of Antichrist will oppose spiritual fathering and sonship. 2 John, rather, from chapter 1 and verse 11 onwards, verse 7 onwards. It reads, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is what? The deceiver and the antichrist. Last night I told you, if anybody does not believe that Jesus Christ came as a man, the spirit of antichrist operating. I also told you that anybody who does not believe that humans can adequately and accurately represent all of who God is, that's also the spirit of Antichrist, if you don't accept and believe it. But also, listen carefully, our, a third application of this, of this principle is this. You see, the key word here is not has come in the flesh. It's present continuous tense. It says, as what? As coming in the flesh. The tense is present continuous. It doesn't just say, he has come as a man and died. It says, as coming. Now, there are many comings of the Lord. <laughs> right? Jesus is always coming to us. As many as received him, to them gave he the power to be come the, or to be called the sons of God, even to them that believed on his, on his name, the Bible says. Now, this coming, he's always coming to us, but he's not coming to us in ways that we think. Jesus even said, uh, or oh, the scriptures teach, that many of you have even entertained angels and you didn't know about it. Sometimes some great spiritual resource can be in your midst and you can be unaware of it. So how is it that Jesus can always be coming to us? How? In the... He himself, the Lord, is not coming, leaving heaven and coming, but he's coming represented in certain human beings to us. It's not that the human beings are him, but they represent certain aspects of his nature coming to us. Right? Now, let me give you... Um, let's just finish this. It says, Watch therefore yourselves... Do not lose what you have accomplished, but that you might receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the, and the Son. Anyone who comes to you and does not bring this teaching to not receive him into your house, that's your church, your, your, your oikos, right? And do not even give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Now let me show you, for example, how Jesus came again to the Galatian church. But, and, and they came, he came vested in the person of Paul. Right? Here's, here's an example. Galatians 4 from verse 12 onwards. I beg of you, Paul says to the church at Galatia, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily 
illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in bodily outward condition, my flesh, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me how? You received me as an angel of God, as who? So was Christ coming to Galatia? Yes. He was coming to the Galatian context represented by Paul the Apostle. This scripture clearly teaches it. So is Christ still coming in the flesh? And any person that rejects Christ as potentially coming in the flesh has got a spirit of Antichrist. Hmm? By this we know the spirit of Antichrist. If anybody does not receive Christ or Jesus as coming in the flesh, he's the spirit of Antichrist. Right? Don't receive that kind of teaching or person into your house. Lest you lose what you've already attained. Right? You know what Paul says, Galatian church. Let me paraphrase this. Can I use my sanctified imagination? <laughs> Paul was not appealing in the flesh. Historians tell us. By all accounts, his external bodily appearance wasn't appealing. Right? They say he was bald and short. Nothing against short, bald people. <laughs> his back, he was lashed. Jesus was lashed once with 39 stripes. 40 save one. Paul's back was lashed by Roman soldiers on three separate occasions, 39 times each. If Paul took his shirt off, he says this, in my body, he makes a statement, I bear the marks of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I had to suffer for his name's sake. Right? Paul would probably not have made TBN. Because he wouldn't have cut the picture. And that's why he, he, he goes at pains to say to the Galatians, apart from all of that, there was some infirmity or illness that he suffered. Right? He's so-called thorn in the flesh. Theologians have theorized for years what could have this been. Right? Uh, I'm of the view that it was partial blindness. Because he said, later on he would say, some of you, I think it's the next verse, no, it does not there. He would say to them in the following verses, some of you, if you could have plucked your eyes out, you would have given them to me. He's talking about sight. But you know the Galatian church, when this short, some people say ugly, some historians, bald man who had a furrowed back, had a, some physical impediment, he says to them, when you saw me in the flesh, you did not despise me for my physical condition. But how? You saw something beyond what you saw in the natural and you perceived and received me how as an angel of god even some of you received me as though you were receiving who christ himself you must always train your mind to receive a true servant of god like an angel as though you were entertaining an angel although you were receiving christ himself personally 
It's amazing this verse, eh? You know what Jesus said to Jerusalem when they rejected Him? Oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem. How our Lord have gathered you like a hen gathers chicks under her wings. But He said, but you would not. Right? He says, therefore your house is desolate. You will not see my face again until you say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the in the, in the name of the Lord. Think about what Jesus is saying to the city. He's saying to them, Jerusalem, you're never going to see me again until you come to the position where you say, blessed is he who comes to me in the name of the Lord. Right? I was at a church last week, two weeks ago in Tongat. And when I came up to preach, the whole church stood up and said loud, blessed is he who comes to us in the name of the Lord. It's important how you receive a man. You perceive him, not in the flesh, but with the grace content he represents. How you perceive him will determine how you receive. And what you receive will determine your reward. Never lose the place of honor and respect. So Paul comes to the Galatians and he comes as an angel. Let's go on quickly. A lot of scriptures to get through. How are we doing for time? Time seems to go faster in this place than in other places on the planet. You know that? It's like we just start something and it's time to wind up. <laughs> Let's just go a few more. What did Jesus say? Matthew 10, 40. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the Father who sent me. Him, the Father who sends me. Do you know when you receive me? And I'm glad for your gracious open-hearted reception of me. Let me just say this, you will get the grace reward. Now, Jesus says, if you receive me, and let me say to you, if you receive me, you're not only receiving me, you're receiving him who sent me. So Jesus is always coming in the flesh to the church, vested in the ones that God sends. Amen? Always. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. How you receive will determine the reward. Very important. Look at what Paul said to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 from verse 10 onwards. Verse 9 says rather, You are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Paul says, when I came to you, uh, people of Thessalonica, you are witnesses that my behavior among you was devout and was, it was upright. Then he says this, just as you know how we were exhorting and doing what? Encouraging and imploring each of you as what? As a father would his own children. So does does Paul father the church at Thessalonica? Yes. He says, when I come, I encourage, I implore, I exhort, just like a father would do to his own kids. Then he says this, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received what? When you received the word of the Lord, which you heard from us, You accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, 
the Word of God which performs its work in all of you who believe. Paul is saying, I thank God that when I came to you, you did not receive my word as the word of a man, but you received my word as the word of God. By virtue of my fathering over you as my, uh, as my sons in the Lord, the word I preached to you, and here's the deal, here's the challenge. Does the word of God perform its work? The Word of God only performs its work in you dependent on how you view its reception. If you see it as just Paul's thoughts, Paul's opinion, then it does nothing for you. But if you receive what Paul is saying as the Word of God, then the Word works. So it's not the Word of men, it's the Word of? It's the Word of? It's the Word of God. I don't want to go through the, the Greek meanings of these words um, because of time. Now you'll see uh, the same verse in, in Galatians. Paul in verse 19 he calls them my children of whom I am again in labor until who is formed in you? Until Christ is formed in you. So he's saying you receive me as an angel, as Christ himself. And he contextualizes this in the father-son wineskin because he calls them children. And he says all my efforts so that Christ will be formed in you. Christ will be formed in you. Now, I want to get to... Can I leave some, some verses out just because of time? I want to encourage you, see your spiritual father as an angel. My wife always says, she calls me Randy. My name is Randolph, she calls me Randy. She says, Randy, she loves... Um, moving of the Spirit. She flows very strongly in many of the gifts of the Spirit. And she says, I wish we could have an angelic appearance in our room. My response is, yeah, I am. <laughs> You're sleeping with one every night. <laughs> I know what she means, but I just jibe her. The actual meaning of angel is the Greek word Agalos, pronounced Angelos. And it basically means a messenger, one who is sent in order to announce, teach, perform, or explore anything. Do not think of angels as celestial winged creatures. They are, though, that kind of angel. But there's another expression of the angelic, because Paul said, when I came, you received me. How? As an? What's the meaning of an angel? One carrying a message. That's all an angel is. One with a, a, a message designed to teach. That's all it is. Okay? So he says, you receive me in that, in that fashion. Now, Revelation 1.20. Listen carefully. John says, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, are the, and, the, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Let me just stop there. In the book of Revelation, there are seven letters to seven churches. Not so? And to the church at, let's say, Laodicea, Smyrna, Sardis, Thyatira, etc. Right. Not so. So, this verse is telling us the stars which John saw are actually the angels of the churches. Right? Every church is an angel in that context. If you look at how each of the letters start. 
to the angel at the church at Ephesus right, to the angel at the church at Smyrna right, to the angel at Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. To whom is each letter addressed of the church? Is it addressed to the committee of the church? No. Is it addressed to the board of elders? Is it addressed to the deacon board? No. It's addressed to who? The angel of the church, right? In other words, the angel is the agalos, the one that is heading the ministry, the father of the ministry. They're giving lead to the word of the Lord. God, to, to shape the direction of a church, God doesn't consult with the committee. God will consult with his man over the head, as head. And God will speak to that man to speak to the, to the congregation. Not so? Right? We can all hear God. But when it comes to strategic matters, where the church needs direction as to its future development, God will talk to the angel. Those that support the angel, the man of God, the pastor, the father of the church, must simply perceive the accuracy of God's word to him. Amen? This is very important that we, we understand this. Now, for example, Malachi 2.7 says, The lips of the priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth. If you're an angel, you must be carrying a message. You can't be an angel with no message. Imagine Gabriel coming to Daniel and saying, Oh, Daniel, peace to you. Uh, I have nothing to say. <laughs> Every angel got a message, not so? And if we are angels in this context, we are the messengers of God. Our message is for our sons, the church over which we have spiritual oversight, designed to shape the nature and the image of God in a people. Right? He is the messenger. Notice, he is the messenger. The word messenger is angel. He is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now, can I just take... Amen, I agree. <laughs> I want to demonstrate this principle from, from Genesis chapter 28. Can we do that quickly? You love the word of the Lord? Amen. You must be careful, we'll be here the whole afternoon. <laughs> Remember Paul preached the whole night on one occasion? And one guy was sitting at the ledge, fell asleep and he, he fell off and he died. Paul didn't lose a moment. <laughs> he just went downstairs, raised the man from the dead and carried on with the teaching. <laughs> Today, if we raise the man from the dead, it'll be on TV, it'll be, it would have stopped the program. He just, like, it was like, so normal, right? Teach the other man, did no problem. Rise in Jesus' name, come back up, we carry on with the Bible study. <laughs> we love the word of the Lord, Amen. Uh, listen to this. Jacob has a dream, and in Genesis 28 it's recorded. Jacob departed from Bathsheba and went towards Haran. Came to a certain place and spent the night there. Because the sun had set, he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head. He lay down in that place. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to the heaven. Behold, angels. Everyone say angels. Angels of God were doing what? Now, you must get the order right. They were not descending and ascending. It says they were ascending and... So where is the start of the activity? The earth. Right? So this is not celestial angels because they function from the 
heavens. These angels function from the earth. And we know from Galatians 4, I read to you, and from Revelation chapter 2 and 3, that angels represent leaders of congregations. So the angelic in us, servants of the Lord, we know how to ascend into the heavenly realms, receive grain or resource, bring it down to our people to share the word of the Lord. Amen? We decode the word of the Lord. So it's always upward then, then, then downward. Now, it says, And behold, the Lord stood at the top of this ladder. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east, the north and the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until you have done what was promised to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, What? Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. He was afraid. He said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than what? Bayit. Yesterday I told you the Hebrew word for house is Bayit, the family of God, the church. What he sees in a dream is a graphic form, dramatic form, of the how the church in the New Testament should operate. Jacob boils his whole experience down to this that I've seen is the house of God. In the house of God, you have angels that ascend to receive the word. Bring the word down to their, bring the word down to their people. He said, this is the house of God. And then he says, it's the gate of heaven. I like that. The church of God is the gate of heaven. The house of God is the access point to the heavens. How do we bring heaven down on earth? God has earmarked His servants, spiritual fathers, angels over congregations that know how to access the speakings of the Lord through the word of the Lord. Now please, we don't go on broomsticks and fly up and come down. No. This is uh, it's a graphic symbolic language being used here, right? We sit in our offices, we're in prayer and fasting, we're seeking God. God is downloading. We come to our congregations and we speak the present word of the, of, 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 of the Lord. And so, and he says, this is the, the house of the Lord. Now, I want to leave, leave these scriptures out. He commits, let me just make this point. After all, listen carefully, Jacob rose early in the morning, right? And, um, he took the stone. By the way, the, the Greek, the Hebrew word for stone is eben. The root is ben, which is sun. The stone that was a pillow for him now becomes a pillar. The issue of sonship becomes the greatest support that he sees in the structure called, he calls the house of God. Right? Becomes a pillar. And you know what the, you know what the Bible says he called that, that place? Bethel. What's the meaning of Bethel? House of God. Right? Jacob said, and he makes a vow to God, and you know what he commits to? He even commits to tithe. In verse 22 he says, This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be what? Will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth. You see, you don't commit 
to faithfulness in tithing without having a revelation of the house. You must have a revelation of what the house represents. And born out of a revelation of the house, Jacob says, whatever you give me, surely I will give a tenth. Tithing must not be born out of you having to be encouraged to tithe. Your tithing must be born out of what you perceive the house to be. Tithing is born out of a revelation of what the house of God represents. If you always have to be encouraged to give, this has not gripped your heart yet. No one has to ever encourage me to be faithful in my, my tithing, my offerings, or my first fruits. I will always be faithful. Why? I know what the house of God represents. It's the vehicle, it's the gateway to the heaven. It's the vehicle through which the kingdom of God is going to find expression on the earth. In the house of God is the family of God headed by a spiritual father who acts as the angel of God. When God wants to speak to the house, he addresses the angel who will speak to the house and guide its movements and form Christ in every believer. Ask your neighbor, what do you see in the house? Elisha wanted double portion from Elijah. The only proviso, the only requirement that Elijah laid on Elisha is this, 2 Kings 2, 9 and 10. Elisha said, please let me a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing, a difficult thing. But the proviso is, if you, if you have the capacity to see and it's not just, yes, it was literal. You have to see me when I'm taken. When I'm taken from you, it shall be so. But if not, it shall not be so. The word see in the Hebrew is ra'ah. Tell your neighbor, you better ra'ah. Ra'ah. You better see. The battle is for sight, right? In the Hebrew, it means this. To look at, as a convolution meaning, to look at, to inspect, to perceive, to consider, to inspect intently, to look at, to see, etc. Regard, look after, see, etc. Discern. So it has a range of meanings. But quintessentially it means to give sharp, introspective, like almost like an investigation into. You're looking with penetrative sight. If you see me, what, what I think Elijah is saying to Elisha, if you fully understand all that I represent to you, if you can perceive it, you can receive it. It's a hard thing. Not too many people get this right. To see the worth of a spiritual father in your midst. Because we're so often driven by the external. So often. But I believe God is reorienting sight. Reconfiguring sight this morning. Amen? Now, let me close with this. Tell your neighbor he said he's closing. <laughs> you know what, when we closed, I said closing. <laughs> Amen? We shan't be long, I promise you. What does Abram mean? Abram, well, let me just give you the, the full slide. Abram means 
exalted father. Remember, Abraham's name was cha- Abraham's name was changed to Abraham. Abraham means father of a multitude. Lot could not see beyond his biological relational connection to Abraham. He saw himself, he is the uncle and the nephew. Or we are brothers in some respect, right? So he couldn't see beyond what was physical naturally before him to see the spiritual nature of the relationship. Remember, names have great meaning in the Old Testament. So here is Abraham, and every time you call the name Abraham, you are saying, exalted father. But Lot can call Abraham, Abraham, but he could not see him as such. Right? Could not see him. It was easy for Lot to walk away from Abraham. Easy for Orpah to walk away from Naomi. If you cannot see the worth of a person, departure from that person will be easy. But if you know the value of a person, you know what the Bible says about Ruth? When she decided to follow Naomi, the Bible says she clung onto her. There was a serious commitment. Not letting you go. Elisha said to Elijah, you will not be left out of my sight. There was a serious, ardent plugging in and connection. Right? Abraham's name would, la- Abraham's name would later be changed to Abraham. From Abraham to Abraham. From exalted father to father of a Father of a multitude. What Lot failed to see, by the way, as you can see, the meaning of Lot's name is veiled. Whenever I think of Lot, I do this. Man's blind. His sight is veiled. He cannot see what Abram represents. And it's sad that many are like this. There are lots of Lots in the church that fail to see the fullest representation that their spiritual father is to them. And when you fail to see, it's easy to disconnect. You know what the sad thing about Lot is? He chose the best land everywhere. But he positioned his tent towards Sodom, the Bible says. By the time you read of, of Sodom's destruction, Lot is living in the city. The thing he positioned himself towards, he swallowed up by becomes assimilated into its culture. Had he stayed with Abram, Abram would have guided him as to where to locate. After they separated, Lot positioned his tent towards Sodom. And the Bible says, Abram inquired of the Lord and he went down to live in a place called Hebron. Hebronic relationships and environment, covenant, whole lot of issues there. It's amazing how one's life can go into... And you know, the end of Lot, he chooses the best land everywhere, but he ends up in a cave where his daughters commit incest with him. Everything goes wrong. He produces two nations, Moabites and Ammonites, that forever gave Israel problems in their journeys, warfare, etc. Everything about lost life works opposite to the purposes of God. And I want to encourage you, open your eyes to see. Let me just see what we got um, for... Let's stop there. I think it's a good place to stop. Do you see? Let me just... One, okay, one more scripture. In Revelation chapter 1, the Bible says, John says, 
I heard a voice behind me saying, write in the book the things that you see. And he says, I turn to see the voice. doesn't say I turn to hear the voice. That's why I, I, I entitled this, Do You See? I turn, to, I turn to see the voice, and the Bible says, when he turned, he saw one like the Son of Man walking in the midst of the golden lampstands. The golden lampstands represent apostolic doctrine. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. The angels are the leaders of the seven churches. But golden lampstands represent churches saturated in accurate apostolic doctrine. John says, when I, I turned to see, I saw not the Son of God. He says, I saw the Son of Man. And I always like to say it like this. Does the voice of your spiritual father cause you to turn to see? You will know who your spiritual father is. If when he speaks, there's a turning in your heart to acknowledge him. Hmm? Didn't turn to hear, he turned to see the voice. When God speaks, through a man, you always got to discern the voice of God in the voice of the man. We call it the voice within the voice. Paul says, you receive my word not as the word of men, but for what it truly is, the word of God that mightily performs its work in all of you that believe. How you see, how you perceive, will determine how you receive. How you receive will determine your reward that God has in store for you. Lift your hands to the Lord. Father, we break all blindness. We break blindness that prevents us from seeing grace that you have brought to us. Father, I pray for this house and for many that are present here from other houses. Father, I ask that you break the cycle of the inability to see the voice that is coming to us. I pray that it will come a new appreciation for spiritual fathering, for the angel that you have earmarked and positioned in our lives. How grateful we are. I pray that all of us here would not come to a place called cursed. No ban of destruction, no famine in this land. I prophesy and speak rather to fruitfulness, to growth, to increase, and productivity. Father, we set the context. We will not dishonor the carpenter's son and frustrate your works. I ask in Jesus' name, O oh God, that eyes will be opened. In this place, I pray, eyes will be opened. Even for those that are not here, not exposed to this teaching, but will listen via CD and DVD, I ask, eyes be opened in Jesus' name. We ask, O oh God, that this place will become a place where the doings of the Lord will run rampant. Do mighty works here, Father. Not only in this house, but in this city, in this jurisdiction. Raise up a standard. Raise up a standard. We ask that this word will settle in our hearts. That we will not lose this word. That this word will be deeply etched and embedded within our hearts and our minds. 
Help us to see beyond the flesh of a man. Help us to see your grace being outworked in our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen and amen.